0: Hello, and welcome back to All Rings Considered, a read through The Lord of the Rings. Today we are on episode 35, book 4, chapter 2, The Passage of the Marshes. Uh, A little synopsis of this chapter Um, this is the five to six days of Frodo and Sam's journey with Gollum towards Mordor. Uh, Some of the big plot points they go through uh, a swampy area called the Dead Marshes, um, and they encounter uh, some strange wisps of light in the bog and see dead faces in the water of the swamp when they're exiting the swamp they see a ring wraith uh, fly overhead uh, they enter into this mountainous area with no living things that's north of Mordor Sam overhears a conversation that Gollum is having with himself or rather, Gollum and Smeagol are having uh, about about killing Frodo and Frodo uh, demands that Gollum bring them to the gates of Mordor and that's where we end and let me just say, this chapter is bleak.
1: It is, but I, I think it's one of the best chapters.
0: It's it's powerful.
1: Uh, it's evocative. I would put forth to anybody who thinks Tolkien's writing is dry, read this chapter. If you honestly can read this chapter and look me dead in the eye and say, oh, this guy doesn't know how to write. This is I will hit writing. you in the face. I will hit you in the <laughs> face. Uh, no, but I will never listen to any opinion you have again because you, it's just wrong. It's just <laughs> wrong. There's no way there's just no way um i'm serious and it's incredible i think the landscape descriptions here are are sublime almost i mean they're horrifying i mean this these, these landscapes are bleak as you said but they are so well described and written and i could just read i'm like oh, who cares about the plot tell me more about this uh <laughs> setting tell i me guess of
0: these these reads that are. <laughs> <laughs> no no but it's like it's it's
1: brilliant the image is brilliant this marshes with the, the flames and the dead bodies, and then I actually think some of the description of the volcanic plain mountain hill area after the marshes is even better. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something else. This is a fantastic chapter. One of the, the peaks of the entire book, I think. So, in, in, a, in its own unique way, too. right? I don't think any chapter is quite like this one in terms of its evocativeness. It kind of stands out in a cool way. Yeah. its own identity
0: yeah it's hard to follow that up um so <laughs> <laughs> uh well we let's start at the beginning that's uh okay it's a very nice place um let's start at the dead marshes i have down here my notes for the dead marshes um another nod to what you said uh last episode about the um illusion of depth as it were um mm-hmm. where Gollum is describing these uh dead faces that they see in the water these images they're not actually bodies they're images of these these dead bodies that you can't actually touch. And he's describing a a battle uh between orcs and elves and men. And Sam asks, But that is an age and more ago, said Sam. The dead can't really be there. Is it some devilry hatched in the dark land? And Smeagol says, Who knows? Smeagol doesn't know, answered Gollum. That's great. He doesn't know. It's just yeah. it's this thing in the world that they're experiencing. Um mm-hmm. I think it adds to the eeriness too, because it's it's one thing to say, Oh yes, this is the, you know level thirteen spell cast by cast by, you know, the Dark Lord that keeps dead bodies here and uh we know everything about it. But I think there's something about especially death, where there is the unknown yeah. having no idea why that these faces are here, these lights hover overhead, not even sure if they're malicious or not. Yeah. Gollum seems to be afraid of them.
1: Yeah. It's a cool like it's a cool alternative myth or alternative explanation for an actual phenomenon, the will-o'-the-wisp phenomenon yeah. that can occur in bogs and stuff with the little brief flames or, or brief little fires. Mm-hmm. So I think that's cool Tolkien taking an actual thing and giving it another mythological explanation, but also not because he doesn't truly explain how it's here. I mean, and there's two levels of mystery. There's what the battle even was, which you have to really think and you have to remember way back in books one and two at various points when the history of the ring was described to kind of remember that there was this big battle that defeated Sauron the first time around and make that connection that this is that, this is where that was. But then there's a mystery of exactly how the the dead are there and how those will-o'-the-wisps essentially uh, uh, emerge, and uh, that's never explained. I don't think we're never told. So I will say like on the note of the landscape itself, one aspect that's not as mysterious because it's one of the times we have Tolkien explaining his own influences on it. Hmm. This is, this is good news for the gentleman or gentlewoman who two episodes ago we quoted as saying that the Lord of the Rings was definitely allegory because he insisted Sauron is Hitler and Saruman is Mussolini. Um, This is, One of the times when it's not quite allegory, but at least Tolkien was very open about his real-world influence on it Mm -hmm. uh, because he does say in the letters of J.R. Tolkien, we have a letter where he says that, um, I'll just read it to you, it's great. He says here that, uh, Personally, I do not think that either war, and of course not the atomic bomb, had any influence upon either the plot or the manner of its unfolding. Perhaps in landscape, the dead marshes and the approaches to the Moranon owe something to northern France after the Battle of the Somme. They owe more to William Morris and his Huns and Romans, as in the House of the Wolfings or the Roots of the Mountains. Um, I don't know anything about William Morris's books. I actually should read them since they're such a big influence on Tolkien. They were written in like 1890s, kind of examples of, sort of the proto-fantasy genre until Tolkien really kicks it off. Hmm. So I, I can't comment on what he got from there for the Dead Marshes. What he does say battle of the song which Tolkien participated in it was a big influence so first world war so you know to that person a couple episodes ago you know he's got the wrong war but uh I guess he can at least hang his hat that there is something from the from the wars
0: there's something from in these books Tolkien's life that made him write down words mm-hmm. and he drew upon his knowledge <laughs> of language
1: yeah um but in the exact imagery here is the idea that You'd have this landscape in that battle that was so scarred that the pits and things that would have formed would fill up with water. And of course, there would be dead corpses everywhere. And so those corpses would kind of float in the water. And Hmm. so that's where Tolkien kind of got the idea, Um, or at least had some inspiration, as he says. It's kind of a famous thing, I guess, that he was inspired by the First World War for these marshes. I feel like I see it mentioned a lot, but it's worth mentioning. Still worth pointing out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And really, it just adds to the entire um, like power of this chapter and its prose. Mm-hmm. We also have some bleakness. I mean, it makes sense. This character's situations are also bleak, but they themselves take on some bleak attitudes. Yeah. So Gollum has this opinion that, uh, that Sauron will capture the ring. He, mm-hmm. he says often he's very like, he's terrified of the ring being captured again, partially maybe because he wants it for himself, but also just he has this, this terror about him. And you have this conversation between Frodo and Sam where Sam is discussing, uh, rationing their food, and Frodo says that, well, we don't really need to think about it that much after the deed is done, which is, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a a downer.
1: Yeah. They might not come back from this. Um, Notice that the, the point of view these last couple chapters, and really the point of view that's going to dominate book four, is that of Sam? It's very rare that we dive into Frodo's mind. It happens like a couple times, but not very often. This is mostly Sam's story at this point. Mm. Very different shift. And we've seen Tolkien experiment with this because books one and two were mostly Frodo. But then three had you had the combination of Aragorn, Mary, and Pippin. And now you have Sam. So you're getting these different perspectives on things. The the point of view is changing. In here, it's I think it's a valuable thematic point. Frodo is becoming more and more lost. He doesn't realize it yet. Nobody realizes yet, what it's happening. And that's being subtly hinted at us, hinted about, toward, what am I? It's being subtly suggested to us by shifting that perspective, by getting into Sam's head, making him the actual, essentially, narrator for this section of the book.
0: And he kind of fills the role of being a hobbit here, where as Frodo yeah. kind of shifts away from that, where a hobbit's position narratively is there are things going on, that you have very little that you can do uh because yeah. you you're small um Sam in this situation can't lead anywhere um he also isn't the ring bearer uh he can think about what to eat he can sort of keep watch but he can't really do that well either and he's in this very hobbit like position um which is you know what uh we see often from lord of the North rings
1: yeah you you do get it. it the only hint i think you see here that Frodo is starting to get lost is is his um it's it's physical he's stumbling now because he feels the ring as a weight mm. um an actual weight on his on his neck and his shoulders dragging him down that's physically happening but that's also a metaphor to how he is internally and um just you know one more hint we are losing him and that the story is heading in that direction of he he will be lost
0: so a couple of just uh quick notes uh mm. here um one I just wanted to mention the ring wraith. Uh, actually, several uh, uh encounters that they have. Um, one is very specific, and then they talk about over um, the course of the next day, they, they feel that, that fear, the same fear, a couple times. It's funny because Gollum believes that they're coming for them, and in some sense they are, right? Like these are the same ones that are going to Isengard.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. it's one of those cool moments Tolkien's trying to make you like do the connection between books three and four since they're like those parallel tracks, right?
0: So they are looking, you know, for Frodo. We're literally looking for Pippin, but I thought that was funny. Let's see. I had a note here about, uh, oh, actually, you know what, can I, I want to read um, let's go back to you were talking about the ring weighing on Frodo., um, yeah. I had a note here. We both actually were talking about this line before we started the, uh, the episode. This is Frodo uh, feeling the weight, uh, the eye. That horrible, growing sense of a hostile will that strove with great power to pierce all shadows of cloud and earth and flesh, and to see you, to pin you under its deadly gaze, naked, immovable. So thin, so frail and thin, the the veils were become that still warded it off. Frodo knew just where the present habitation and heart of that will now was, as certainly as a man can tell the direction of the sun with his eyes shut. He was facing it, and its potency beat upon his brow. Um, We were actually talking. Yeah, it's a great line. We're actually talking about how um, I really like just the sentence. so thin, so frail and thin, the veils were become Mm -hmm. that still warded it off. Tolkien at times has this, uh, this way of working in some very interesting grammar. (laughs) um, That makes you that makes you read it twice. Um, But it never feels uh, like, at least personally, it never feels wrong. It feels like something you read twice and you say, Oh, um, I'm not used to something that beautiful.
1: But that, that whole line to me is an example of, some, of the, some brilliant writing. The eye, that horrible growing sense of a hostile will, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to pin you under its deadly gaze, naked and movable, so thin, so frail and thin. There's a really cool rhythm to it, and it's very intense. It's describing this will that's beating down on Frodo, and the writing itself is beating down on you as the reader. In that paragraph, it's so different than what you had been reading up to this point. I love it. It's brilliant. I want to make note of just some other cool writing things here. Like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, I think it's the landscape descriptions are are brilliant. But we have descriptions about um, the the land after the dead marshes, uh, and it says it, it describes it as um. Excuse me, the gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and gray, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire blasted and poison stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. You also have it described Frodo and Sam in this landscape as little squeaking ghosts that wandered among the ash heaps of the Dark Lord.
0: It's fantastic.
1: really evocative and powerful stuff here. Then, of course, the marshes themselves, with their imagery, as we mentioned earlier, are in cre- creepy. Uh yeah, I mean it, it it's wonderful stuff. It's wonderful writing. I I absolutely love it. Heck of a book.
0: Heck of a book. I wanted just to bring up uh the conversation that Smeagol and Gollum are having. Mm-hmm. So not too much about the specifics of the conversation, but um Gollum has a ring fantasy. And uh Corey Olson uh mentioned this in one of his podcasts and I thought we should do that too. Um, uh, yeah. Different characters when they encounter when they encounter the ring, they have these ring fantasies. Um, and Gollum's is um, kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Gollum when he's um, thinking of the ring, he says, uh, "No, sweet one, see my precious. If we has it, then we can escape even from him, eh? Perhaps we grows very strong, stronger than wraiths. Lord Smeagol, Gollum the Great, the Gollum." eat fish every mm-hmm. day, three times a day, fresh from the sea. And that's his V-gollum.
1: Yeah, I love it. The gollum who has... As if he's not already a yeah. V-gollum, <laughs> right. too. <which> is, <laughs> it's wonderful.
0: Um, and he has fish, three times a day. Um, yes. I, I actually went back and looked at uh, a couple other ring fantasies. We have Galadriel's who, um, mm-hmm. she says, I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible uh, as the morning and night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and etc. And also, all, all shall love me in despair. Um, Boromir's is something like, uh, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. How to drive the hosts of Mordor and all men would flock to my banner. And he thinks about walls and weapons and plans for glorious victories. So uh, the ring, you know, is, is playing on their specific, their desires. But it's but it's funny to Uh Three fish a day. I don't know. I like it.
1: Yeah, I love it.
0: Um, and actually My... so one coming up is Sam's. Um, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Don't we get his at the end of this book, I think? I think so. I think it's at the whole end of the last chapter of book four, so look forward to that. My last note on this chapter specifically has to do with thinking about the um an interesting parallel that came up. Um, I was reading it and I was struck by how book four here has started with three characters, one of whom is acting as sort of the scout. And we've seen that uh, at the beginning of book three. Book four and book three essentially start very, very similar. They have parallel beginnings, three characters. One's a scout and book three is Aragorn and book four it's Gollum. And it they're, they're like weird mirror images of each other, right? But like an inverted mirror, like something's not quite right or quite the same. Mm. Even these marshes are supposed to be like, they're a part of, they call it the Dagorlad Plain Uh, that's been overtaken by some of these marshes. So just like Aragorn's running around the plains of Rohan, we're here sort of on these plains outside of Mordor. They've just sort of been overtaken by marshes, still with a guide. It's a really cool parallel. And we've talked, before. I I think this is something I've talked about before, like Tolkien's idea that the universe is like recursive and that these images repeat over and over again, like events repeat and settings repeat and that kind of thing. I think we're seeing that here. I think it shows the interesting kind of relationship these two books have. They weren't maybe written to be published together as they ultimately were as The Two Towers. But once they were, this parallel relationship was kind of drawn out, or at least emerges to the reader. I mean, if you're reading this as The Two Towers, the title itself is sort of suggesting two different narratives, and that's what you have, right? We have two different narratives, each dominated by a particular tower. Uh, according to Tolkien, it's Orthanc for book three and it's Minas Morgul for book four, because in both books, those towers are doing a lot of things, like Orthanc sending Saruman and Oryx and Minas Morgul sending out Nazgul. They both kind of end in those vicinities, right? Book three ended at mm-hmm. Orthanc, as we just saw, and book four is going to end in the vicinity of Minas Morgul, which is where the Ring Wraiths basically live, by the way. <laughs> I didn't really say that, I should have. Um, so they're, they are deliberately they have like this deliberate parallel relationship in a way.
0: Yeah. You know, that's interesting too, because it's, they have different aspects of the relationships between the three characters as well. So you kind yeah. of you have this mirror of uh, like the planes of, of Rohan and this sort of beauty that's described in, in that book. Um, and here it's all not that. Right. Right. And, but in these three characters, they are not three trusting, loving companions that are all allied right. together for a single purpose. Right. They all have, different purposes they their focus are all completely different things and you know and here you have the tension of one of them wants to murder the other one <laughs> like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> gollum wants to murder frodo uh sam wants to murder gollum mm-hmm. frodo is uh concerned about the eye yeah yeah but it's like really I said, nice it's this weird yeah.
1: twisted relationship where it's kind of a, it's a similar scenario on the surface but then everything's wrong about it but you see similar parallels we pointed them out last chapter you pointed out frodo Talking about all his choices going wrong, just like Aragorn did in Chapter One right. of Book Three, these things are going to repeat and like kind of you know repeat, but then not, like also subvert each other in a way. Uh, and I think that's really what, if the Two Towers as a volume has anything linking the two very different books, um, that's what it is. Like you're not going to see something like books one and two packaged together as Fellowship of the Ring and both kind of playing on the same this building theme of gathering party members or something mm-hmm. in this book it's like there are two different but at the same time parallel and at the same time subverting narratives it's much more like strained and like strenuous relationship between the two right right um, like they're at odds with each other in some ways and also not it's very yeah just like a coiled knot of interesting relationships i, I like it. i think it's really cool and again i i know it might not have been it might not have been intentional since they weren't necessarily meant to be published that way, but um uh, I think part of it one I don't well one I don't think that matters if it's intentional or not. I think it's here um to even if they weren't meant to be published together like they ended up being, they still did come back to back in a way that I think they were meant to kind of be in dialogue with each other
0: so in this wealth of prose in this chapter, do you have a favorite line?
1: Yes, unfortunately, I actually read it already, so whoops, um. But uh, it was the line It was the line I read earlier describing the Hobbits as little squeaking ghosts that wandered among the ash heaps of the Dark Lord.
0: Yeah, I really like that too, the description of this dead area and these small ghosts uh, making their way through it. Um, it's very powerful. Yeah, what about you? My favorite line, uh, also actually a description of the same area, they had come to the desolation that lay before Mordor. The lasting monument to a dark labor of its slaves that should endure when all their purposes were made void, a land defiled, diseased beyond all healing, unless the great sh- sea should enter in and wash it with oblivion. I feel sick," mm. said Sam. Frodo did not speak. Yeah, and and this actually kind of I didn't think about it, but it's uh, like what you said—the transition to being kind of a being more from Sam's point of view. Um, yeah, Frodo just doesn't have a comment on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, go through the whole chapter. Like, we're constantly being told what Sam thinks about things. And there's only once that we get into Frodo's head. and It's about that, the eye beating down on him. And that's, that's it. Everything else is Sam. And we only know Frodo thinks when he speaks. But Sam, we always get the inner, the inner dialogue.
0: Before actually we finish up, um, I did want to take a question that we got from one of our listeners. Um, so, by the way, if you're Wait. a listener, uh, send in a question and we will answer it, answer it on the podcast. We got a question. We did. Um, Dr. Oh Kenny God. Barrow from North Carolina asks, oh. "Who would win in a fight, an eagle or an oliphant?" Um, and the answer is an eagle. So, yeah, send in is your it? questions. Uh, if you have anything else, <laughs> you're so confident in this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if there's anything you want to know, uh, we will find out for you.
1: Anything at all. Anything at all. Literally anything.
0: Literally anything.
1: Literally anything. Um actually it has to be rings related, I guess, since it's all rings considered. Alright, well yeah, let's go ahead and close it up. Um This is a good question though. Send in send in more, please. Um I will say the chapter title here is decent. It's not as bad as it usually is, I think. The passage of the marshes. It's not great, but it's a little better. I just wanna point that out. I think next chapter read a really cool title, so I'm excited for that. Uh but yeah. Um next chapter is chapter three, The Black Gate is closed. And we'll see you then.